Hello, this is Rusty Reno. I am at my desk. And so, yes, listeners, this is the next episode of The Editor's Desk. And I have with me Elbridge Colby, principal at the Marathon Initiative. And he has served in the government on, on a couple tours of duty, most recently leading the development of the Pentagon's 2018 National Defense Strategy. And we're here to talk about the morality of a strategy of denial in the October 2022 issue of First Things. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you. So, I'm going to just plunge into it. Why China? Why China? Well, I mean, I think it's basically because China is huge. I mean, it's a much, much bigger power than anybody else that we face in the international system today, or in fact, relative to ourselves, that we have faced over the last century and a half. And, you know, as the quote I used in the piece, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You can't you can't allow such a power to become uh, dominant. And so because of by virtue of how powerful it is and how plausible it is that, that's, that China could dominate first Asia and then the world, that, that needs to be our overriding focus. And a big part of the reason for the sharpness of, of why I you know emphasize focusing on China is that we're not focusing on China. And that's that's a huge strategic error that the country is is, uh, is making right now. And I should tell the listeners that you have a book, Strategy of Denial, that lays out, you know, in 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 quite in in detail, you know, both why and how, why we need to deny regional um, hegemony and and how to do that. But the gravamon of your article really has to do with answering the question, I guess, of somebody who challenges you and say. Oh, Mr. Colby, you're just a cold, amoral realist. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because there is a hard-nosed quality yeah. to what you're saying that that China, by, by any reasonable guess, would like to exercise as much dominance of as much of the world as possible. Yeah. No. I mean, and and I think. I, I, I'm not just saying this because because I'm talking with you, but I really value and prize the opportunity to write this piece in in first things um, because I take the issues of morality very very seriously. In fact, my you know education uh, in school and college and so forth in particular were in actually moral and, and political theory. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a believer uh, and and so forth. So I take those issues of you know with profound seriousness in and of themselves. But I also think they're exceptionally important, you know, as a political matter and a strategic matter, because I think, you know, especially in democracy, you, you have to, and really any form of government, you're, you're, if you're going to have a sustainable position, people have to be persuaded of the morality of the strategy. And the book, actually, I would say morality is present in the book, um, in fact, quite, quite importantly, but it's always in a more instrumental sense. Uh, so if you go back and the kind of thinkers that I'm you know, uh, you know, in all humility, I'm trying to follow along. And, you know, if you say um, uh, Clausewitz or, or Hans Morgenthau or these people, th there's a moral sensibility, but it's it's usually kind of muted in the development of the, of the strategy itself. And so I talk about, you know, the importance of not striking first and the importance of seeming the defending party or the aggrieved party, but more in an instrumental sense. 
But what this, the article here really gave me the opportunity to do is actually provide an, a forthright moral defense or defense of the, you know, on moral grounds of the morality of the strategy of denial. And I, I do believe it is, you know, I say in the, in the article that it's, it's not necessarily the only moral strategy, but I, I, I'm not sure there is another one that I can think of. And I do think it's a, it's a moral strategy if, if properly followed. Just so the listeners are kind of on board with, with what's at stake here, in the book, and, and you, you outline this in the piece, but certainly in the book in, in more detail, you explain why defending Taiwan against Chinese invasion is crucial for maintaining an alliance structure in the Pacific, that without which um, China would be able to serially pick off uh, any resistance uh, to its regional dominance, go, go from one to the next to the next, uh, fine slicing, I think you call it. Um, uh, so just to re readers note, and, and, and this is, this is uh, you know, because of China's military capacity, which is you know, an unprecedented buildup, it does involve, you know, really uh, something on a much vaster scale than either the Iraq War, Afghanistan War, or even right now the war in Ukraine. So a lot is at stake, morally speaking, because of the incredible destructive power of modern instruments of war. Um, but I was wondering, I mean, listeners should know too, didn't you do work on U.S. nuclear strategy, which is an interesting, it's in the same family of, uh, if you will, um, use of force uh, or, or uh, careful thinking about uh, force deployment to ensure that, that you know, uh, our adversary doesn't prevail. <laughs> Right. <laughs> but also to ensure that uh, unnecessary violence is not unleashed. Exactly. Well, I mean, you're right. In fact, my, my earlier contribution to First Things about 10 years ago was on nuclear strategy and the morality of a, a kind of looking basically a defense of at least some forms of nuclear strategy or U.S. nuclear strategy in the face of, of then a sort of a high pitch of opposition, both from some of the kind of worthies like George Schultz and so forth, but also uh, rest in peace. But also uh, even some uh, you know leading figures in in the Catholic Church. Um, so I wrote that in that in that context. But you're right, and I mean I think just going to the the stakes are are the the are you're you're absolutely right. I mean the potential for a conflict with China, which could be enormous, it could it could escalate into World War Three. Um, but also I would say that the, the stakes for us as Americans and, and really people all over the world in terms of our physical security, but also the, the lives we lead in terms of our political freedoms and our economic prosperity. I mean, basically the competition or the rivalry with China at its kind of basic or its essence is about who will determine, um, you know, the future of the global economy. And of course, who, he who determines the future of the global economy will have immense power over, uh, you know, over freedoms and liberties. And this is particularly, I mean, knowing, you know, first things readers, I've, I've been a reader for decades at this point, um, you know, where people generally lie, obviously a, a polyglot uh, group of readers in, in the best sense. But, but I think there is a tendency among those of us of, of this kind of disposition to say, you know, the Iraq war was a mistake and it was, uh, you know, we, we've gotten into too many of these military interventions and I share that, that uh, sense. Um, but, you know, let's forget about Taiwan, forget about the Western Pacific. Maybe we'll let China dominate the region and we'll, you know, reshore in industry home and so forth. And I think that that's a, a false hope. Um, if China dominates well over 50 percent of global 
uh, GDP. You know, of course, you may hear about uh, the semiconductors that are built on Taiwan, you know, the uniquely capable semiconductors there. That's just an, in, in a sort of a particular pointed example of a phenomenon that's much, much larger, which is that China will be the gatekeeper and the dominator and the rule setter and the regulator of the future economy. And so there's a sort of unreality in some of our debate, particularly on in this part of the spectrum, that we can kind of let China run roughshod over the rest of the world, basically, and we'll be fine at home. That's not realistic. So, so the, the, the you know, my arguments for defending Taiwan, I, I wish the people of Taiwan well. I'm very sympathetic. I admire their enormous accomplishments, but it's not about Taiwan's interests, about Americans' interests, and particularly our, our enlightened self-interest. And that's the sort of, but again, that gets into, you know, what, is that a moral way of looking at things? And that's what I wanted to try to do with this article is explain why that is. And in fact, not only amoral, but more moral than, than many of the most prominent alternatives. You, you outline what you call kind of the classical moral uh, outlook, uh, which is to um, refrain from doing intrinsically evil acts, uh, but uh, in so within the range of permissible acts, which is quite extensive, that you pursue, uh, use proportionate means to pursue good ends. Um, so what are the good ends that we should seek as a nation? Right. I think that's right. And I mean, with a classical moral approach, I didn't, I mean, I'm not, there are many, many others, including many readers of the magazine who are, and you, uh, Rusty, who are more sophisticated and, and uh, you know, well-versed on, on this. And this, you know, I recognize these are debates that have been going on for 2,500 years. So I wanted to give a kind of a, a generic view that would, you know, uh, that, that would allow any number of permutations, but basically a sort of you know, ends-oriented form of morality with the restrictions that you that you lay out, which is to say, not doing things that are intrinsically evil. So it's not pure consequentialism, um, but that basically, you know, morality in this context is serve effectively serving good ends in a way that's not intrinsically bad. And so, what are those good ends? Well, I mean, we are Republicans. I would say small R, although I would imagine parliamentary systems would have a similar model, but basically it should be the sort of long-term, relatively equitable interests of the American citizenry. And those I largely sort of put a triumvirate of obviously physical security, which is the root of all other mm. goods, because, you know, at least in, in this, in the imminent world, you need to be alive <laughs> to flourish, um, uh, which is the goal. And then, and then, uh, you know, political freedom, uh, of some kind and and prosperity, uh, you know, a, a, a reasonable degree of prosperity, and of course those are somewhat interlinked. Um, but those are the sort of the good ends, some kind of you know reasonably equitable uh, arrangement of those three goods. I think is, are, are the basic uh, purposes of American foreign policy. And you argue that these goods, which are goods for Americans, are consistent with our um, allowing and even promoting those goods in, in other nations. Exactly. Well, I think that that's, I mean, you can see it in the world since the Second World War, and I'm not, you'll not, you will not see the word uh, or the term rules-based international order used without mockery in my writings or, or remarks. Um, but, you know, one thing that gets, that that, that that sort of concept gets right, there is a kernel of truth in it, or more than a kernel, there's, there's an element of truth in that, which is that there is a system that has developed since the Second World War, which needs to be adapted and refined and so forth, in my view, and always needs to be grounded back into those fundamental purposes. It's not good in and of itself from our point of view. But that that it is a system that provides goods to multiple actors, right? I mean, it, you know, and I, I travel a lot and deal a lot with, with you know, uh, 
government officials and journalists and experts from, from friendly foreign countries, uh, occasionally hostile from foreign countries, <laughs> although less and less these days. Um, but, um, but, you know, they, they, are, they are deeply invested in, in, this, in this system because they know they benefit. In fact, part of the problem is that they benefit so much more than, than, than we do. That's one of the problems in the system right now. Um, but it, that, that's, it, it's, not the, it's not the core uh, sort of moral rationale for a strategy of denial or a kind of anti-hegemonic strategy. What I would say is that it, it contributes to its morality. If you had a situation in which it were very zero sum, because this is one of the points that I stress that I think, again, is derived from classical moral theory, is you have to have due respect for the reasonable claims, moral claims, and interests of others. And if you have a, a situation in which, you know, the goods that you're pursuing are also good for others, that strengthens the moral claim. So that's why I always use uh, the term enlightened self-interest. Of course, uh, I was, uh, we were just talking about Yoram Hazoni. Yoram is tr trying to got me, get me off the enlightened element, <laughs> but I, I haven't come up with a better term to convey something that is a sort of a, a positive sum, uh, you know, a, a positive sum variant of self-interest. But I think that's part of the, the, the you know, the reason why this is a moral approach. I, I, I like the idea of enlightened self-interest. Uh, you know, what's, we certainly are going to be more likely to maintain strong alliances if our allies see their interests advanced by making um, sacrifices in order to stay with, it, with us as allies. In fact, one of the arguments in your book uh, is that Japan and Australia, which are the kind of the key anchors of any kind of alliance structure in the Western Pacific, um, they're they're they are they're both extremely anxious that the United States uh, right. project power to the Western Pacific, um, <laughs> right? Let alone Taiwan, so they, you know. Yeah, so they right, clearly right. see uh, see this strategy uh, that you're articulating as serving their interests. Uh, the, security of their own people, the prosperity of their own countries and their own capacity for self-government. Um, what you, 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 you call it um, an ethic of this, this approach, tremendous scope for prudence. I often get very frustrated with the way in which often theologically educated commentators moralize um, prudential decisions um, in but you you describe it as an ethic of stewardship or an ethic of responsibility, and you kind of turn the tables on some of my moralistic friends. <laughs> well, you'll, I, I, you can imagine I'm, I'm in sympathy, profound sympathy with your point. In fact, I, I say that moralism is not uh, moral. In fact, it may be uh, it may be bad or or even worse. You call it um, moral peacockery. Moral peacockery. <laughs> I, I think I think I. Uh, no, I like. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> I, peacockery. I think I may have gotten it from our, our mutual friend Grayson or one of our other old friends. Uh, <laughs> but it's a great term. Uh, you know, the peacock is plumes, but when you uh, when you challenge, it's not so. There's not so much substance there. But yeah, I mean, I think the, the ethic of stewardship gets to me. And I've, I've had this sharpened over the last few years listening to people like the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, or others. I mean, a real sort of perorations of, you know, moralism and sort of, you know, kind of John F. Kennedy type stuff, albeit without the, 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 the huge increase. He was in a pretty hard-nosed character. Yeah, exactly. They Kennedy at least backed up his... his his uh, his rhetoric with some with some reality, um, but I think that that's um, the ethic of stewardship is basically you know I think this is the moral metric 
for judging statecraft. And this is, you know, it's interesting. I was actually, I mean, I, I talk a lot about the classical moral approach. And I think it's certainly consistent with the Aristotelian approach or something. But I was struck actually recently, I think I sent you a note, um, at least in, in, in the Catholic Church, that the, there was a reading from Luke 12, uh, where Jesus is actually a parable about talking about the different, you know, the, basically the, who I think it was the, the leaving the, the, the coins or, or, or the, 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 the seed. I, I can't remember offhand, but basically indicating that, he, you know, he expected his, his stewards, he expected those who were to whom he delegated responsibility to, to, to be effective, to plan for the. And future. not just that, in that parable, it concludes by those who have been given much. Much shall be expected. Exactly. Much. Exactly. Much. Shall we be have in the same issue as your piece. We have a piece by Nigel Bigger, who's a um, moral theologian at Oxford. Right. Right. Of course. And yeah. It's a it's a Christian defense of the American Empire. All right. And, that's going to be a spicy it, issue. <laughs> and he essentially is arguing here that the fact of the matter is is that the United States has the power to ensure um, a global system that is equitable, relatively equitable, and that therefore we have a duty as Americans to sustain that system. That's a bit more liberal imperialist. That's a little more Gladstone uh, than I would, I mean, I'd have to read the piece. Um, that sounds to me a little more like, um, uh, I'm trying to find the, the, the term that doesn't, I'm not implying anything. No, you, no, I think you're right about that. I mean, yeah. partly he's a Briton arguing. Yeah, that's for, a strong for, element tradition. So that he's, he, our national interest is not going to loom large, although he does do justice to that aspect. He says it's a duty of a statesman to promote the interests of, of his nation. Right, and I think in that in that enlightened way, I think that's I think that's right. But I think the stewardship model is basically a steward. I mean, if you think about like a trustee of an estate or a will or something, that person's responsibility is to serve the interests of those entrusted to his care. Right. I mean, he's supposed to make prudent financial decisions or spending decisions based on you know the um, the character of the individuals at hand in the best interest. And so it's, now it's inherently. Uh, you know, a difficult endeavor because you're dealing with things that are uncertain, that are stochastic, unpredictable, inherently human nature, et cetera. And when you're dealing with, with states and the possibility of war, you're de I mean, you're taking it to a whole nother level of magnitude. So it's not, you know, so just because somebody didn't succeed doesn't mean they were immoral if they took reasonable steps. So what I, the, the, the criterion I use is in reasonably anticipatable consequences, you know. So, I mean. Yeah, like, for instance, I think. I look back and I think it's wrong to say Neville Chamberlain was immoral for pursuing a strategy of appeasement. It, he was unwise. Well, I, I would say, and it's interesting, I mean, I'm reading... Although some people, I, uh, the new book by Sean McMeekin on Stalin's yeah. War, um, I think it's in that book that there was a big concern in the British elites that they buy time to rearm. Well, that was, which is, I think, kind of the revisionist view. Now, that is, Chamberlain, in a sense, has a more defensible record than, than his predecessor, Stanley Baldwin, from what I understand, which is that, that I mean, was it naivete? Was it penny-pinching? Uh, unwisdom, if it's negligent, is actually immoral. In well, that's view. a good point. Right. right. So, so Churchill and others were there and saying this, and, and once Hitler, particularly once Hitler was in power, and of course they'd begun the, the rearmament, then it was sort of willful ignorance, so it was immoral. And the moralists were, um, you know, at the time, the moralists were the, the partisans of disarmament and unilateral disarmament and so forth, and just kind of hoping and wishing. That actually is immoral. And so I would say in, in the contemporary context, 
people who are saying going out there and saying that we should take on Russia and China at the same time and risk nuclear war, especially without resourcing the military forces that are that are necessary. For, I don't think that would be in our interest to do that at the same time anyway. But but that that is that is unwise, and it's they should know better. So that is actually immoral. Yeah, I, uh, one of the things that you point out in this piece, uh, and you you just um, kind of reiterated it, that uh, statesmanship, I mean, is an incredibly complex set of factors, and then you add in um, the, uh, the the po- possibilities of war, which are, as you say, it's a long debate about why people go to war. Let's set that aside. <laughs> I can't settle <laughs> but, every debate. I certainly. And moreover, it's one of those maybe unsettable debates, exactly, because the reasons are so. Are so multifaceted, and 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 the passions of men are often very inscrutable. Um, right. What in the let's let's talk about war preparation, because I think a lot of our listeners and people of faith are very like. Shouldn't we be spending that money on you know helping? In fact, a lot of people argue a lot of Americans are suffering. Shouldn't we spend that money? So talk to me about the. The morality of war pre- preparation. Sure. Well, if you're so, if you have this model of stewardship, and your goal is peace, and my goal is peace, but a decent peace, right? Not a peace of, of, of enslavement, right? But a peace of, that's consistent with those basic that triumvirate of interests. Well, then you say, well, the reasons why wars happen are debated and will be debated until the end of time. But um, you know, it's I think a pretty you know, it's a sound, very well-rooted judgment that you are less likely to be, you know, the object of aggression if the potential aggressor recognizes that his efforts will not only cost him a lot, but very likely be futile. You know, fail this is the, kind of the logic of deterrence. Basically the logic of deterrence, right? Which is, I mean, it's a cliche, but there's a reason it's a cliche, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you go back to George Washington, the famous story says something, you know, one of the most effectual means of peace is being prepared for war. But, you know, the Roman, uh, the Latin, um, uh, you know, uh, saying, you know, I can't remember what it is in Latin, but, you know, if you want peace, prepare for war, et cetera, et cetera, going, back, going all the way back. And so if you accept that, that point, which I think is right, and I think that that's, okay, well, then if that is the right, the most reliable way of preserving a decent peace, then it is actually morally, you know, uh, uh, necessary or obligatory to follow that. Well, then what does it mean to be prepared for war? Well, then being prepared for war means being prepared for war in a way that would actually affect the decision making decision maker of the potential aggressor in a way that matters. So there's a tendency often for there to be a sort of people stop and and stop at that kind of generic point and say, well, we should just kind of spend money on things and we'll, you know, have aircraft carriers. And, but I, the logic of really of my book, and this is actually how I ended the book, it's really the sort of the, the last note, which, which again, I think is sort of a, Evidence of, of my uh, you know, appreciation of the moral element is that to achieve that 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 pacifying effect, that deterrent effect, you really have to think through what a war would be like. Because if somebody else is really capable and resolute, as I think the Chinese manifestly are, given their their unprecedented peacetime military buildup, we need to be just as, as convincing as they're going to be. And so that means really being prepared to fight. And then the question about you know. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, guns and butter, or what? <laughs> plowshares and swords and so forth. Well, look, I mean, if I mean, if for no other reason, if we fail to have an effective deterrent, then there will be 
a war, probably, uh, which we will either lose, in which case we will suffer from those core goods. We'll have less money to spend on on the, the, the charitable and other you know, virtuous uh, uh, purposes that, that you laid out. Or we'll be in a very, very large war that will be far more expensive and costly than it needed to be, and we'll have less money. Which is, I mean, in a sense, the, the argument for the Second World War. And again, it's cliched, but if the Americans, you know, I mean, I, again, I'm not an interventionist by nature uh, or by inclination, but if the United States had stayed in Europe and worked with the British and the French to have a more effective deterrent, Hitler might have risen, but he, if we had been sufficiently resolute together, he would not have been able to, say, take down France. And that then involved, you know, the D-Day landings and, you know, basically signing over Eastern Europe to the Soviet Union. There was a better potential outcome. And that, again, getting back is that's what we want to avoid. War making. You argue that, and here there's analogies to our uh, nuclear strategy. You argue that we have to prepare for a war, but we have to be able to do so such that we can have a flexible response. You know, basically... A limited war, it's, it's kind of funny. Limited wars only happen if you prepare for them, uh, right? Um, if you, if you, um, and I'm, you know, you're an expert in terms of what the, what the arms or the kind of build out that we necessary, but I was very struck by that. We don't want to carry the war to Beijing. We only want to prevent them from uh, uh, conquering our allies. Right. Well, this is, I mean, I think you put your finger on it. I mean, this is both a strategic and a moral admonition, right? Now, limited war sounds sort of Dr. Strange like sinister, um, but our, if our alternatives are capitulation or a war of completely unconstrained violence, then that's really our only realistic option, right? Now, in the early stages of the Cold War, after the discovery of the, the atomic bomb, the United States did not have a limited war force because, for a very good reason, which is that the Soviets didn't have a formidable nuclear deterrent. So basically, we could destroy them and they could barely touch us. This was true as late as the Cuban Missile Crisis. But in the latter part of the Cold War, the Soviets developed a huge nuclear deterrent, uh, nuclear arsenal, and uh, not to mention very significant conventional forces. And so we shifted more in the direction of at least the notional ability and it's a complicated story but that's that's sort of so, so so the cold war gives off a bit of a um i mean i think it's the cold war should always be taken seriously uh, we can learn a lot particularly in the kind of military domain but it, it, was, a, it was a it was a very successful series of decades of both limited war and um it was a strategy of denial it was. I mean, in a sense, in a sense, a lot of the strategy denial is basically picking up late Cold War strategy. Because I um, think you use the term strategy of denial. I, I've thought of, you know, the policy with respect to China is one of containment. Containment. The only reason I don't like containment, or I like it, um, my good friend Ashley Tellis uh, at the Carnegie Endowment, he uses balancing without containment. I think we're balancing because containment had the idea that we were going to literally contain Soviet power until it sort of mellowed or collapsed. I think with China, it's too big and likely too enduring to be really contained. And that will get us part of the problem of containment. I, so I agree with you. The Cold War so it, it encourages a kind of false analogy to the Cold War. Yeah. And, and the, the most successful part, which is by far the most important, was that we won in the central theater without a war. You know, and we really did win. I mean, the Soviets fell apart, which is, I mean, unbelievable in some, in some respects. Gorbachev just passed away. And, 
the fact that that happened without a war is a, is a, a triumph of skill, luck, <laughs> you know, probably some foolishness on Gorbachev's part about what the communist system was able to do in terms of reforming itself. But let's not look at the gift horse in the mouth. The, the, the downsides of the Cold War in particular were the peripheral conflicts that we got involved in, particularly Vietnam, and Korea to some extent as well. But containment, the, the idea of containment, I think, while it was fundamentally sound, had a tendency to, to, to get us embroiled in, in conflicts that we didn't really need to. And I, I mean, I, I have tremendous admiration for the people who served in Vietnam, enormous suffering and sympathy for the people of South Vietnam who suffered so much in the, in the coming. But that's, you know, we lost, we didn't probably need to do the degree of effort that we did there. And that's part of the logic here is also what I'm trying to do is give like a limiting factor. So telling us what we need to do, but also what we don't need to do. And you right. mentioned the particular in the war, not not marching on Beijing. My point is to give us a, a clear sense of like, what's this kind of bottom line standard that we need to achieve in, in how we fight a war? We don't need to go to Beijing. We just need to defeat Beijing's invasion because then our anti-hegemonic coalition will stand together and we'll be able to tell Beijing to go pound sand rather than tell us all what to do. But by the same token, strategically, we don't need to get into a war in Laos or Thailand or whatever, but we do need to fight in, in, in Taiwan, in my view. Okay. Do you think that prudence dictates that that be a strategic consensus, but that our official policy should be continued ambiguity with respect to Taiwan? Yes. Long term. Yeah. You so you think that we should be the message we should be sending to Beijing: you invade tomorrow, we will respond. But we have yet to decide what our views are on the ultimate disposition of Taiwan in relation to the People's Republic of China. Precisely. Like, I mean, I think the political. There's, there's generally too much focus on the political, you know, what's called the declaratory policy, the sort of diplomacy, the three communiques and the one China policy. I don't think we should mess with the one China policy because that's not in our, again, getting back to our interests. Whether Taiwan is independent or not is not a, a fundamental interest, especially relative to the stakes at it, you know, the cost that could be at issue for us. The people of Taiwan are in really good shape with the status quo relative to the people on the mainland, like in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's good enough. What we should be doing, though, instead of prodding the dragon, so to speak, we should be ensuring that we are strong enough to, to defend Taiwan. And we should communicate, which I think we actually have done, we should communicate sort of implicitly, not in necessarily in formal statements, but such that China will understand that we will come to Taiwan's defense. I actually think they probably already do anticipate that we would come to Taiwan's defense. So, so from a kind of messaging point of view, I think we can kind of like, you know, call it a day. What we need to focus on is sort of hitting the gym, and and you know because that's what we're not where where we're not where we need to be. One of my friends who um, served in Iraq and now teaches at one of the academies, when we pulled out of Afghanistan, and I was on the phone saying, I guess we at least we have, you know, a military used to conflict, well prepared for conflict, and he dissented strongly from that. He said, actually, our United States military is not prepared for symmetrical conflict, that we're, we're way too used to asymmetrical conflict. And as he said, if, you know, if a division gets hit in the jaw, um, it, it, that hasn't happened. And, do, uh, you know, we need to prepare for an adversary that can inflict serious um, damage on our forces. I, I think that's basically right. I mean, I'm not an expert on, you know, the readiness of the sort of military operational level, but... I think there's way too much confidence in the 
sort of capability of the American military vis-a-vis -vis the People's Liberation Army. Now, there's a lot, the PLA, the Chinese military, has a lot of question, fundamental question marks and, uh, you know, lacks capacity. But they've been focused on the Taiwan scenario for the last 25 years. And if you check out Twitter or something like that, you can see videos of them doing like air assault preparations or helicopter preparation, amphibious assault preparations. You know, the American military, it, I think it is the best in the world. I think that's fair to say, although we don't know because it hasn't been in, in, in a one-on-one -on -one conflict uh, with, with a peer adversary, uh, really essentially since 1945. Yes. Um, and, you know, all those operations in the Middle East were, you know, they were of some value, but, but also in some ways they were not because they involved a very you know, say permissive operating environment. So there's, you know, my, my friend David Johnson from the Rand Corporation, he's written some very good things about, you know, just the, you know, and I think the Ukraine situation shows, I mean, how the brutality and the attrition that would be probably the case in, in a conflict, which, you know, you'd, you'd have a lot of like the, the super, you know, futuristic stuff, particularly early on would be likely. But, but, you know, as those were expended, it could become a, a, a just a, a, you know, a slugfest. And I think, you know, my view is, I mean, the, the kind of the somewhat jocular analogy I use is I don't think Tom Brady won however many Super Bowls he won by every at the end of every season or the beginning of every season. Ah, we won last year and we won the last year before that, so now we don't have to worry. No, he never took it for granted. And that's the sort of mentality. And to be fair, I think there are a lot of people in the American military, your friend is one, I mean, or around the American military, who are very worried about this problem. In fact, the people who are on the business end of the operation are the people who are least likely to take it for granted. <laughs> so, yes, and, and that's for good reason, both because they know the problem and because their necks are the ones that are most at stake. So I think we should, ha you know, it's sort of, we should have a state of like, and, and again, this article, this article in my book are kind of like, let's give these people what they need and don't take any chances. Um, and and uh, so that we're, we're maximally ready. Final question. Is it reasonable to say that in the current configuration, Russia and China are pursuing a strategy of denial with respect to the United States of America? Well, I would say um, both of them are what you might call more sort of re revisionist powers. I mean, I would say that China is pursuing a strategy of, you know, I, I, I use in the book, a focused and sequential strategy, basically kind of divide and conquer to achieve a hegemonic position over the world's largest market area. And so far, I think they're they're doing pretty decently. Um, and they I mean, don't they don't seem to feel as though their their um, ability to function as a sovereign nation is at all threatened. I don't think so. There's a line of argument that China's got kind of clay feet and is going to crater in the next you know decades and onward. I it's possible. I'm I'm quite skeptical personally, both because it sounds tendentious, frankly. Um, you know, sort of what we yeah, want, people what thought we that about the United States in the 1970s. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, but also because, you know, I mean, they just have so many factors that would allow continued growth. I mean, even if they have diminished growth, they're so big that, you know, just getting people out of poverty, moving people up the kind of value chain, they're going to have a lot, and, you know, sure, they're going to have demographic slowdown, but they've billion for people. I mean, so... You know, in any way, like my view is prepare for the, you know, again, going back to the, the, the ethic of stewardship, you would want your steward to prepare for the, the major downside risk. 
you know, the, the, the big risk if we overprepare is we've spent too much on insurance, but people aren't like, you know, lambasting Ronald Reagan because he overspent it in the military. People think that, well, I, I mean, I think most people would say, geez, I'm glad we did that, you know, and I mean, that's not to make Reagan wasn't, wasn't, he wasn't clairvoyant, but I think that was absolutely the right call at the time. And I'd rather be in that situation than this situation of like 1938. And you're like, whoops, <laughs> we should have, we really should have spent the last, you know, eight years building up our military because it was pretty obvious what was going to happen, which is kind of closer to where we are in a way. Well, I really appreciate this piece. Uh, and I'm really glad that we had, you had a chance to help our readers understand how preparing for war is not, uh, is not kind of uh, irresponsible saber rattling, but rather, as you say, a, a proper uh, stewardship. Um, so thank, thanks a lot. Thanks for your work. And, and listeners should should look at uh, at the book, Strategy of Denial. It's, um, I found it a very helpful explanation of what's at stake um, in, the, in our engagement with China. Thank you very much, Rusty. It's been a real pleasure and an honor to contribute to the issue. 